Hi guys and welcome to another episode of Mind on the Game. This is a Vent Sports podcast series hosted by me, Freddie Cocker. Each pod, I check in with men and women from across the sporting landscape. We talk all about their sporting journeys, their mental health and how they keep their mind on the game. My special guest for this episode of Mind on the Game comes from a sport I have had little to zero interest in up to now, but is one I'm fascinated to learn about through him. We actually connected when he responded to an Instagram post I did about one of my favourite dance R&B artists, Young Franco, and we bonded through a love for the scene. Alex Kihirani is a co-driver in the World Rally Championships, who currently competes in a Citroen for the Santilok team and has been competing for 20 seasons. Alex started competing as a co-driver when he was just 16 years old and debuted in the WRC when he was 25 years old. Alex combines his job as a co-driver with a role in data analytics and has taken skills and experiences from both his careers to further and strengthen the other. In this episode, we discuss his journey into motorsport from being inspired by his dad, who was originally from Kenya and then moved to America, to Alex's move to the UK 10 years ago. We discuss the adrenaline rush of the races themselves, what impact the legend Colin McRae had on commercialising the sport and bringing it into the mainstream, whether Netflix's F1 Drive to Survive has had any impact on interest in rally driving, and the psychological profile of co-drivers, including Alex, and the type of person it attracts. For Alex's mental health, we discuss the impact that his parents' difficult divorce had on him, his diagnosis of Crohn's disease, and the impact that had on his physical and mental health when he was a teenager. We also discuss how he developed resilience and anti-fragility after the divorce and how he's come out the other side. Alex was also diagnosed with leukaemia in 2015 and we discussed that treatment process which thankfully did not involve chemotherapy and he was able to adapt and live a fully and happy life after his diagnosis. We finished by discussing the birth of his daughter who was born 13 weeks premature and how he's navigated that as a father and three periods of grief that Alex experienced from the motorsport world. His mentor in a motorcycle crash, his best friend from university who took his own life and one of his childhood heroes and drivers he worked with called Dave Mira. So this is how this episode of Mind on the Game with rally co-driver Alex Kihurani went. Alex Kihirani, welcome to Mind on the Game, mate. Thank you so much for coming on and letting me check in with you. I'm so excited to learn about sport as a layman. You have been excelling in for so long and give it a platform. So first off, how are you, mate? How was your Christmas? Yeah, it was good. Christmas was busy. Had both my parents over from the US and our uh, new daughter home. So uh, it's been quite busy hosting a lot of people for Christmas and then also taking care of the little one. But great to have the whole family together and well, most of the family together and also spend some time with the new little addition, as challenging as she may be. <laughs> Amazing, mate. This pod's going to be a big step out of my comfort zone when it comes to my knowledge of sport, and I've had to do a lot of a lot more research, I should say, for this episode than my usual ones, which excites me as well, as makes me a little bit anxious. So I hope that uh, I do a good job. So without further ado, are you ready to start the show, mate? Yeah, I'm ready. Let's start mining the game by discussing your motorsport journey and how you got into rally driving, mate. So first of all, tell me how you discovered it 
what sparked your love for being a petrol head in quote unquote and how did you fall in love with the sport yeah it's actually sometimes hard for me to remember since it seems like my passion for rallying predates memories it was really as a toddler my dad was watching me or babysitting me and not so interested in kids shows so he'd just watch motorsports and rallying mostly whatever VHS tapes he could import from the UK. He said, as soon as that was on, I was like in a trance. I was just obsessed. And from that point forward, you know, I'd watch uh, the Pikes Peak Hill Climb in these rally videos every single day after my nap. And I was always wanting to do that. I think it was clear to me, even by the time I was in kindergarten, that rally driving was what I wanted to do and uh, what I dreamed and hoped to do as an adult. I just was maybe in uh, not the right place or right country for for it. But uh, fortunately, as I'm doing it now, it hasn't completely gotten in the way. Your dad grew up as a big fan of rally driving, like you said, and when he was in his home country or native country of Kenya, he wanted to compete himself, but sadly he never got the opportunity. So he then moved you and your mum to the US, first of all. Now, when you discovered rally driving, you know, predates memories, essentially, (laughs) how did he encourage you without falling into that trap of some parents, which is living out their dreams through you in an unhealthy way, as some parents seem to do right now? Funny enough, it's it's just not really my dad's personality to do that. He was just interested in rallying himself and my older sister just never took an interest. But for me, I was passionate about it. And he was, you know, since he didn't have, you know, we didn't come from an affluent background in motorsports is very expensive. He at least had like some old cars he'd tinker with. And so as a child, I pretty much just follow him around and he would be doing what he wanted to do. And, and he was always trying to do it. And I just followed along and tried to do it myself. You know, my dad growing up in Kenya with the safari rally, I think, you know, there's very few Kenyans that really can afford to do that event. It's one of the most expensive rounds in the World Rally Championship to begin with, just because it's so long and so car breaking. But when he moved here for university and met my mom over here um, after he moved for university, you know, that gave him at least the ability to do some small little hill climbs and those kinds of things as money would allow and at least gave me you know, the opportunity and my, you know, his family, the opportunity to be able to, to get in a position where one day I could do it. My dad never was interested in living vicarious through me, vicariously through me. He never had a plan. I think he was more interested in just doing it himself. And the vicarious living through me, maybe um, he only took that opportunity this year. <laughs> you then got involved in some online rally communities and forums when you were growing your love for the sport and eventually learned how to do road rallies without even having a driver's license when you were age 12. So just tell me about how you found a mentor that helped you on this journey called Claire Chis who helped you progress that yeah so fortunately my dad was also really into technology and computers and we had the internet and high-speed internet quite early on and my dad would do you know we teach himself how to program and code and so other than rallying in cars we're always into computers together as well so naturally once the internet became a thing I was always well, there was no Google yet. I think I was using like, I don't know, web crawler. I'm trying to think of the, the, what AltaVista, some old old school. Oh, yeah, well, startup. Yeah, and just yeah. searching everything I could about rallying and fascinated that all these things that were so inaccessible from the US were suddenly accessible to me on the internet. And from that, I was able to find like it's called Rally L is a rally distribution list. So this is like predates even online forums. I just go on there. I think I was 11 years old and I just you know, respond to messages and talk to people. 
and randomly uh, just message people on AOL Instant Messenger asking things about rallying. I think I wasn't even asking for anything in particular. I just wanted to talk about rallying. I was so excited to have other people to talk about rallying with. And the rallying community in the US, I would say, is just really passionate and quite small and you know enthusiastic and caring. And they, a lot of the people there were quite, I guess, impressed that someone so young had such a passion for rallying. And you know, really engaged with me from that age. And so then when I went to, there was one rally per year that I go to with my dad, that was about a four hour drive away. That was the closest national level rally because the US is a huge place. Then I'd meet everyone that I'd talk to online all the time. And they'd realize that I was, some of them didn't realize I was like a, you know, 11, 12 year old kid, (laughs) (laughs) which I guess is a good thing. My spelling was good enough for that era. And so then I had a relationship and sort of mentorship from them. And my dad never had enough time off of work really to, or quite the interest to go spectate rallies that were other than this one event per year. The next closest rally was about a 10 and a half hour drive away, which wasn't, you know, really possible for him. And so through, you know, talking to these people and trying to figure out what the best way forward was, I was able to, some of them actually offered to let me hitch a ride with them to uh, the first one I did was was Maine Forest Rally when I was 13. And then before then, when I was trying to figure out how to get involved in the sport, they pointed me to the rules that actually didn't need to be 16 to be co-driving in road rallies and helped me find one close to me. And then um, I was able to do one of those with my dad, which he was happy to do as well because he was driving. He doesn't like co-driving. <laughs> mm-hmm. So uh, both those things and getting connected in the community and then you know working through what it's like to be a co-driver and then going to events, helped me learn a lot about the sport. And then also, of course, build my network within the sport, which is really what you need as a, as a co-driver if you're going to find a seat and then progress. At this point, you were quite keen on wanting to be a professional driver or co-driver. However, as you've <clears> alluded to, the finances made the former not really a viable option for you. Just tell the listeners who aren't well-versed in this sport why it's so hard to become a driver in rally driving, as well as an obvious comparison to, say, bigger motorsports like Formula One. So I think all motorsports are quite expensive to get into just because of the equipment that's around. When I was 12 or 13, 13, I think, when I was really passionate about driving and I was, you know, it was probably the first era of racing simulators on the and video games on the computer that were good. I was really wanting to, to start karting and I had a paper route. And I saved, you know, all the money for a go-kart, which is like, you know, I guess you could get a used one for like $1,500 and then had like a proposal for my parents and they were still weren't able to really do it just because it's not just the cart, it's the tires, it's the maintenance, it's the fuel, it's the entry, it's the trailer that needs to go with it. And just to be able to compete at the lowest level, you're still going to be spending thousands of dollars or pounds in order to do it to get started. You know, I'd say even at that starting level, okay, maybe that's accessible if you're middle class or upper middle class. But as you progress, it gets increasingly more expensive. And at least I'd say in the the Formula One ladder, you know, you go, karting is very much related to single seater racing. You know, you're one seat in the car, you're driving around a circuit and you can see, you know, skills from karting translate very well into single seaters and so there's a a really good almost like football type of hierarchy and training system to kind of work through that you still need to pay quite a bit of money especially up front but you can get some support and maybe sponsors if you start creating some really big results when you're young 
with rallying, karting doesn't really translate into, into rallying. You need to be driving a, a proper car on gravel roads, which is going to be more expensive. You're going to break more things. There's more maintenance costs. And of course, sponsorship is difficult. And even if it's possible, you need to first prove some results which cost money to do. <laughs> Someone's not just going to pay for your rallying because you uh, did two events and looked good. The best case scenario is you're doing a few years <laughs> out of your own pocket and then and then someone would uh, would start really helping you out. So that wasn't necessarily possible for me, but I think, you know, when you mentioned the one mentor I had, Claire Chisma, really pushed me into the direction of co-driving and helped me understand the personality traits and maybe the abilities that you need to have in order to to be a good co-driver. And I think I could see that, yeah, maybe actually I was quite well suited to it and I would be able to get started with it right away. And since it's not the most public facing part of the sport, you know, everyone wants to be the driver and get all the glory. Actually, if you, if I really put my effort early on into doing that the best I could, then fortunately as a very optimistic kid, I felt like there was no reason I couldn't be really good at it or even get to the higher levels of the sport if I really focused on just that. Before we talk about your co-driver career in more detail at the time when you were growing up what did learning about rally driving going to watch rally driving and rally driving itself give your mental health your adolescence and I guess the relationship with your dad too I would say particularly gave me a lot of direction and drive I'd say naturally I'm actually no pun intended (laughs) yeah yeah um I'm, I'm quite a like a relaxed and laid back person but it really gave me a purpose to work hard and push. And especially once I got to the age where I started hitching rides to go to rallies and I was quite obsessed with doing as much as I could. Obviously, I needed some time off of school to do that. And my parents were nice slash sneaky and, you know, writing a few sick notes. (laughs) My school did provide like some days you could take off to do something educational if I wrote a paper. Um, And I always enjoyed writing. So I would do that as well. But I knew that the only way I could get away with doing this and being away from school is if my, well, essentially if I had like straight A's, if everything was perfect, if I was always getting A's, if I was always, if I was always performing well in school um, and performing well in everything else, then no one would be able to question my decision (laughs) to, to be going rallying that I shouldn't be doing it. And so I think if I didn't really have that, I wouldn't necessarily have the drive and motivation to actually be successful in or work hard in other areas of my life. And so it just gave me that direction and that push that was self-motivated. Let's fast forward to 16 years old now, because this is the moment where you got your first co-driver seat and you quickly started doing the US Championship when you were age 17. Now, you're still incredibly young here. Did it feel quite surreal or did you have that fearlessness that this is my time and I'm going to just acclimatize and adapt really quickly. It definitely was surreal. I think when I was 17 and started doing the national championship, I hadn't even been on a plane since I was four. So when I was, (laughs) when I was four years old, my parents remortgaged the house so that we could go to Kenya and see my grandparents essentially before they passed away. And I could meet my family, you know, have a huge family in Kenya. My dad's one of 12 all 11 of his siblings have children themselves. So I have, you know, over 30 cousins. So it was quite important to meet that family. But that was the only time I'd been on the plane. Otherwise, we, you know, didn't really have any money for family holidays or anything like that. So even just going to the airport by myself, 
17 years old, getting on a plane by myself, <laughs> flying across the country and doing that. That was quite surreal as well. Because I mean, at that point in my life, the highest level of rallying I'd ever seen was in the national championship. And I couldn't believe I was there. And I was also quite intimidated because I you know, wasn't sure if the opportunity that I had, if those types of things were going to, to last, <laughs> if I uh, just sort of was able to get a seat based on some people that I knew and if I was you know, really capable of it. At 21, you then joined the Subaru USA team and you were co-driving one of your childhood heroes, which I guess was probably another surreal moment, <laughs> yeah. Dave Mira. And you told me that Dave had previously been a legend in the pro BMX scene and he had switched sports. <laughs> so we're going to talk about his really tragic death and the impact that it had on you later in the pod, Alex. But from a positive angle, just tell me about what it was like driving with Dave and the relationship you had together in the car. It was really cool to see. I think, I mean, as a teenager, when I got into skateboarding and I was always riding bikes as a kid, I'd actually loved Dave Muir, loved his video games. We had gone to see him do some BMX event actually in uh, around my hometown when he came on a tour and also in the in the X Games when I was younger. So it was quite surreal. Also, you know, being so much younger than him, you know, essentially being there to teach him how to uh, go rallying. And I was surprised that he had that interest to do that. I was quite impressed with him. I thought it was amazing how just human he was. I think, of course, with these celebrities, especially the ones that you idolize as a kid, it's even just strange just being in a situation where, particularly in rallying, where you're with the person for 12, 14 hours a day. You see the good, you see the bad, I mean, but you see the person as a whole. And I never, you know, noticed any kind of snootiness or pretentiousness about him. He was always really down to earth and also never, you know, overconfident in his abilities at all. He even sometimes had more doubts about sometimes him, himself doing it than I even thought was necessary or, or helpful. <laughs> I was just surprised, like I said, how down to earth and normal of a person he was and how much, you know, he made time for his family and even my family. He uh, was as normal of a human being as you could imagine, not any kind of crazy weird uh, celebrity and sorry i might have mm. forgotten some aspect of your question so <laughs> no don't worry no diva behavior then basically yeah, yeah. which is good yeah let's fast forward five years because when you were 25 you made your debut in the world rally championship at rally finland yeah. now how big a moment was it for you as a co-driver and also just a lifelong rally fan when you are joining literally the most prestigious tournament in rally driving yeah i think that was basically a, almost like a desperate deep dream come true Finland is, yeah, let's say there's three or four rallies in the world that are pinnacle or core to the World Rally Championship. Other than, you know, Monte Carlo, I guess, is probably the granddaddy of them all. But Finland mm. is the... The Monaco, shall the, we say, the, that Formula F- 1 Finland, is. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, Finland is maybe the, the favorite child. I mean, I guess to go into rally history for or most war history, some of the, the listeners, you know, Rally Monte Carlo is the first rally, first proper rally, first rally in the World Rally Championship. The Finns always really excelled in it. And for Finland to be able to decide who they sent to the Monte Carlo rally, they created their own rally in Finland on the the fast, like kind of roller coaster type of roads that they have. It was the first rally to properly close down roads and make, you know, full on speed tests. So they basically created the structure of modern rallying and those sort of fast flowing roads with all the big jumps is definitely the the most spectacular scene in rallying and is also the foundation of the championship. So it was probably the top of my bucket list to do since it had always been 
the most visually spectacular, you know, surreal images that I had seen in rallying in, in my lifetime. And I'd always dreamed of going to that place that seemed so foreign and so far away to do that legendary event. And also to get there, you know, I offered the driver that was doing it some money to be able to be able to to make it since his sponsorship wasn't quite covering this event in the World Rally Championship. And then we ended up needing more money and I actually was able to is very early in the is 2012, so crowdsourcing is quite new, but we're able to raise the extra twenty thousand dollars we needed the $25,000 we did the week before, just in five days before from about over 100 just rally enthusiasts, most of them since I knew from the time I was a kid on those rally forums. Mm. And also the driver, Chris, was the other person that sort of grew up with me in that time period. We're the same age um, and he started really young as well. So uh, they wanted to see us there and everyone threw in $100, $200 here and there. And we ended up getting the funding we needed to do it. So it felt like everything came full circle that the people that yeah helped me get involved with the sport really ensured that I could uh, make my dreams come true. And even and even then, even now, I'd say I'd still like infinitely grateful and feel in, indebted for that. Let's talk about the sport itself and that experience if we can now, because I want to really show my listeners what it's like to be in that cockpit. So tell me about how you get into that mental process before the race, when you're in the race, and how you manage the adrenaline rush when you're in it, when you win a race, get a podium, or just put in a good performance. I'd say starting for rallies, especially on the co-driver side, your organization is is the most important aspect. So doing absolutely everything you possibly can before you get on the plane and you know arrive at the event. I'd say the co-driver's job, if we're going to say at a very high level, is to do absolutely everything so that all the driver has to do is turn the wheel and push the pedals and they can essentially follow your commands. <laughs> and so rallying is very complex just because you're not on a closed circuit. It's multiple days out in mountains and forests we drive on public roads to get to the the special stages that you race on, you know, everything, all those public roads that you drive on have to be, you know, you get a, a set time limit and you have to check into the stage exactly on your minute. If you're a minute early, it's a one minute penalty. If you're a minute late, wow. it's a 10 second penalty. You know, you need to come into the stage with tires and brakes warm and pressures correct and setup correct and all your safety equipment on and, you know, the right fuel and tires and all those kinds of things. So it's a lot to manage. So I'd say the most important thing is before the event that you prepare and you understand everything that needs to be done throughout all those days from the, you know, the recce, from the testing to the recce to through every single road section and stage of the rally. And if you do that and you're prepared and you have that all documented, then that releases you to be able to think on your feet and adapt, which is what you really need to do when when you're there. I would say once you're you're in the rally and getting focused in the car, you know, for me, I've well, I've been doing it for 20 years now, so fortunately it seems to come quite quickly, but I would say, you know, the first thing is just understanding and being confident in the pace notes that we have. My system with my driver is that the morning before we start the rally and oftentimes, you know, we're starting at 6 a.m., so maybe we wake up at 4 and we bring up the laptop with the onboard videos of the rally or the recce videos, and we read the pace notes 
and we have the video at a speed as if we're going through the stage. And so we go through everything and get that front of mind to remember and get any of the little kinks or little mistakes out. And then you have that confidence that, okay, I've already done this at speed and I can do this again. And once we get to the stage, you know, my concentration, you know, there's a lot of things that have to go on with timing and even just silly stuff like turning on the video camera and setting my watch for the road section and turning the road book to the right page for when I leave the stage and communicating with the marshals to get the right time and, you know, ensuring all those things are right. But once that's correct at 30 seconds before we start the stage, that's when I do my last things that don't involve pace notes. Pace notes are the instructions I read to the driver that he relies on to drive the road. And my way of really concentrating is it's kind of like a bit of a, a mindfulness technique, but I watch the clock very closely. So, you know, my driver, I do a countdown for him. So I tell him 15, I tell him 10 seconds. And then where I really concentrate is at the five. And what I try to do is I say every single number exactly when the time changes. So I can feel the timing of me trying to deliver the pace notes is like a metaphor to me timing each number of the countdown. So when I say four, as soon as the F is done, it you know, the clock changes. <laughs> so it's like just getting that rhythm and I focus only on the clock and getting that absolutely perfect. And then when I say go, then I'm in the zone of being in the rally car, which is, you know, nothing else exists other than the car, the driver, the road ahead and, and my pace notebook. In that scenario, then it's like a hyper aware state where I'm constantly looking at the book and the next instruction, looking ahead to see exactly where we are and feeling what my driver is doing the whole time. Because I can, you know, when I say a note and I say in a certain way, I can feel the reaction through the car, through his inputs, through the steering and the braking. I can feel what he's doing and I'm trying to to manage that to make sure I don't slow him down too soon or um, slow him down too late that we go off and manage everything within the car. And I think when you get into that zone, then, then mm. that's the best feeling because you're, you feel like you're taking so much in, you know, you're feeling what the car's doing, you're feeling what the driver's doing, you know, the road that's coming ahead, you're timing all your notes, and then you're in this beautiful, spectacular place, you might be high up in the Alps, you know, in Southern France, or maybe you're flying over a jump in the Finnish forest and you're just taking absolutely everything in because you need to take everything in and there's no room in your brain for anything else, including fear. <laughs> so um, it's like being able to do those things and not be afraid. You know, you feel all the sensations of the, the speed and, uh, and uh, the G-forces within the car. And also the connection with the driver, I feel like is something really special. And you get to take all of that in fully. Mm, amazing. It almost sounds like an out-of-body experience in some ways. Mm -hmm. I want to move on to the name that is synonymous with rally driving for the casual or anyone with just a passing interest, which yeah. is legendary British driver Colin McRae, MBE. I'm going to refer to my notes now because he was the 1991 and 92 British Rally Champion. Yeah. In 95, became the first British driver and the youngest person to win the World Rally Championship Drivers title, a record which stood for 27 years until, and I'm going to pronounce this correctly, <laughs> Kelly Rovampera Perfect. took the 2022 <laughs> season title. Yeah. And I think a lot of people may have even gone into rally driving through the video games or even just took it up as an interest which yeah. carried his name. 
he drove for the same team that you did in Subaru. Mm-hmm. And there's other numerous achievements that he had, which I can't go into because I'll, I'll be here all day. Yeah. Colin tragically died in a helicopter crash in 2007, much like quite a few other celebrities have. You know, Kobe Bryant did. It's why you will yeah. never see me in a helicopter anytime soon. No, I, I, what influence? Things I won't do. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. What influence did he have on you growing up and did you see the impact he had on sort of commercializing the sport to a more mainstream audience did you see the impact he had in sponsorship deals you got or other teammates that you had what can you tell me here yeah I think his impact on the sport was huge especially with helping people understand the spirit of rallying and also progressing rallying to what it is today which is especially at the world Rally championship level that you're you're flat out all the time you're not taking things easier necessarily being strategic. You have to be fast and pushing. And the result of that is something really, really spectacular. And I'd say because I was so obsessed with rallying from such a young age, well, my first years in rallying predated Colin. My actually first hero in rallying was Ari Vatanen, who was before Colin, the youngest world rally champion. And he actually ended up, yeah, that sort of flat out flamboyant style. And he actually ended up mentoring Colin at Subaru. You know, for me, I, of course, I've I've always been into my rallying video games. So I love the Colin McRae rally series and played that quite a lot. And he was always one of my idols in, in rallying. And I was, I think, I think also funny enough from a co-driving perspective, his co-drivers had a big influence on me because I think Colin was, and part of the appeal of him was he was a bit hot-tempered and difficult to control and had a lot of accidents. And I always saw his co-drivers as being extraordinarily capable and patient and, and brave to be able to, to handle a driver like that and be able to stay calm and keep themselves together going through <laughs> that sort of pressure. And actually, the co-driver won the World Ride Championship with Derek Ringer. By the time I got on Subaru, so Colin had actually just had tragically passed that year. But Derek had been on the team running with Travis Pastrana. So he was, when I was uh, running with Dave, Derek was my teammate, which was pretty amazing because I had always idolized Derek and his delivery and approach. And, And actually how I learned how to read pace notes was I had a VHS tape of Colin McRae and Derek Ringer at the... 1992 Arctic Rally, and it came with a little pace notebook. And so I'd learned how to read pace notes as kind of like a 10 year old trying to follow along. And I was always imp- so impressed by how he could just not get lost in <laughs> and do it. So it was great to have him as like a, a little bit of a mentor. And then ironically, the next year I was replaced at Subaru by Derek Ringer. So Travis Pastrana's old co driver came back to the sport he had retired for a bit actually Travis Pastrana's old co-driver Christian Edstrom was kind of the person reason why I worked my professional job at EY and in the big four but that's another story so he <laughs> came back that freed up Derek and they thought well who's better to try to coach and progress Dave Mira you know this 21 year old kid or um <laughs> still in college or the 1995 world rally champion and I think the choice is pretty clear but yeah so I've always admired his particularly his co-drivers and their ability to be able to handle and manage him, Nikki Grist as well. And then as far as the sport, as I'd say, Colin, I feel like is responsible for the sport coming into the modern era. You know, you have the video games, the spectacular flat out driving, and you just gave that emotional appeal to people that I feel like sometimes we lack in the World Rally Championship today. But definitely, I think even if he wasn't 
you know, doesn't have as many championships as everyone else. He embodied the spirit of rallying mm. in the way that no one else has. Yeah, it very much feels like he was almost the Sean White for snowboarding yeah. that he was for. I worded that badly, but yeah, what <laughs> Sean White was for snowboarding, Colin McRae was for rally driving, yeah. essentially, in yeah. those sports. I really want to talk about the psychology behind being a co-driver, Alex, as you alluded to it a bit earlier in the pod, as you are the person not literally behind the wheel, but supporting them. You talked about how Claire Chismer spoke to you about what kind of people are attracted to the role of mm -hmm. being a co-driver, especially as they're not ones who, like you said, get the fame and acclaim mm -hmm. that the drivers do. So tell me about this. Did you ever get FOMO? And tell me about this... Uh, autograph session you as well mentioned yeah, off yeah. air to me and the impact about that yeah i mean i think as being a co-driver as i as i alluded to before one of the most important parts if not the most important part is your pre-event preparation and, and in order to really have the patience to do that and produce all that documentation and go through every aspect of, a, of an event with a fine-tooth comb you know like for rally monte carlo that i'm preparing for at the moment you know the road book is over 200 pages we are rolling forward notes rolling forward over a hundred pages of notes and going through making all those schedules in different Excel templates and movement schedules and all these kinds of things. So I think you just need to be quite studious. <laughs> so you need to be someone that has the patience to sit down and, and look through all those things. You need to be quite organized, which I feel like maybe didn't come necessarily naturally to me, but I realized the importance of it and, and being a co-driver, wanting to be a co-driver has made me a lot more organized. And then you also need to have a, a real passion for the sport. Co-drivers have a much longer career than drivers. And you know you need to be really connected to everyone socially across the sport in order to get the opportunities to, to sit with the right drivers. Since there's no speed test for a co-driver, it's <laughs> based on your reputation and performance. So it's a little bit different in that regard. And then you know, also, I think you have to be more passionate about the sport than necessarily your own glory or fame or success. And you have to be, I think, quite importantly, you have to be okay with taking the backseat a little bit to the fame and the glory. I would say quite naturally to me, that's always worked well since I don't like that much attention. I think like anyone, <laughs> I like the admiration of doing a good job or someone that, you know, really appreciates what I've done, but I don't want to be, I guess, out there signing autographs all the time. There's basically, there's the whole like idea of being a, a celebrity and, and having random people that I don't know trying to look at and scrutinize my life in, in any way, even if it comes with lots of attention seems just really stressful to me. I think what was great about being on the Subaru team at that time with essentially three celebrities, you know, Ken Block, Travis Pastrana, Dave Mira, was I was able to see what it is like to be a celebrity quite firsthand. And I realized how much I don't want it. <laughs> like, yeah, the first ride I did with Dave, it was in Eastern Washington slash Idaho. There was an event at a Subaru dealership for them to do this autograph signing. And so I drove Dave there. You know, it wasn't mandatory for me to come, but I drove Dave there and I dropped him and I just wanted to see what was going on. And I got there and there was a line just snaking through the entire dealership, taking up the whole thing and then going out the door and around the block for people to sign autographs. And I could just see 
Travis, Kenan, Dave there just with bags under their eyes, just signing things, getting babies put on their lap and taking pictures. And some people knew who they were. Some people just knew there was a celebrity in town and wanted a photo and just like, oh, hi, how you doing? Just And it was for hours. <laughs> you could tell mm. how tough it was. And, and I was then kind of out along the side and there were some people that were I'd say like rally enthusiasts or wanting to learn more about the sport. And so those people are out there and some of them ended up having a conversation with me and I was able to tell them about rallying and they were genuinely interested and, and also knew a little bit themselves and wanted to know more. And for me, that experience was fulfilling. Whereas the experience of signing a lot of autographs and getting a bunch of pictures taken wasn't. <laughs> so for me, it's always been kind of the aim to be good at what I do, but only known by people that know that, <laughs> not, <Yes>. not necessarily <laughs> be more widely known, because uh, I think uh, having that level of, of scrutiny is quite hard. And also when I did the X yes. Games with Dave and saw how that kind of celebrity world works, you know, in the post race party and everything like that, it was cool to see once, but uh, it's weird to say that I'm glad it's not my daily life because there's it's so unlikely so that consumed. it would ever be that way. <laughs> but yeah, um, I'm completely happy and okay to not be in the limelight. Before we reflect on this journey, I wanted to quickly talk about work-life balance because as you mentioned, you are successful in finance with your own career there. So how do you manage rally driving alongside that career? Yeah. And how have the skills you've developed as a rally driver? So for example, teamwork, reaction times, decision-making helped your finance career. And how was that? helped your rally career? I mean, I think they've both been quite mutually beneficial, I would say, even going back to just schooling. And one of the points I made that rallying gave me that motivation to do well in school, because if I needed to be away, if I did well, and I was away, no one could really say anything. And I took that attitude into university. When I went, actually ended up with two degrees or two courses, because I always took an extra class to be able to drop something if a God, rally got one of them were you <laughs> and uh, <laughs> I actually only ended up ever having to drop one class ever and it was because when I did have a conflict with an exam or something like that I, you know I'd, before the exam I'd always go before the exam or there would always be going into class sometimes I was in these lectures with 300 people I went to a big you know, American university so like if no one was answering a question I'd raise my hand if there was something I needed yes. to say, you know, I'd go to office hours. And, you knew the game. And, yeah. You knew the game. And, uh, <laughs> so then the professors, if I had a conflict with the rally, I would ask them, like, can I take this exam earlier, maybe? And generally, they would let me do that. There's only one time in four years that that didn't happen. And the same then went when I started my career, that if I performed well, then when I needed the extra time off to go rallying, I would get that. And eventually, it would be when I wanted to transfer to the UK, it was only if you performed well that you would be able to have the opportunity to do an international assignment or get picked up and have a sponsored visa and those sort of things. And moving here was the most critical aspect of being able to progress in rallying and particularly to get into the World Rally Championship. I, you really can't do it from the US. So mm -hmm. like I said, there's, they're quite mutually beneficial, mutually dependent and beneficial just from a career progression standpoint. Since Without the work, I wouldn't be able to do the rallying. And without mm. the rallying, I wouldn't have the motivation or drive to really do the work. And then just as far as you know, skills themselves, I would say 
And as I mentioned, I, I wasn't the most organized person as a kid or a teenager, but I realized I needed those skills to be a good co-driver. And so then I worked a lot on my organization. And then that kind of translated back into school and that helped me quite a lot. And then as I got into work, then you're sort of doing these organizational things, especially in like management consulting day in and day out. And so it helped me become more methodical about things around organization, preparation, review your relationships, because it's just something that you do all the time and it becomes a habit. It's not something that you have to work on or consciously try to do. And so then when I go into my rallying, then when I need to do those things, it's just like quite natural and quite simple. Even when you get into even more minute detail, like, you know, I need to build some you know, I have best Excel workbooks, for example, for recce schedules and road section timings that have all this automation built in and all these different reconciliation checks that I would have to do in order to prove something is right for my job. But I do them in rallying and it's all built in in a, in a way that doesn't require, you know, additional intervention and I know is correct and I bring that into rallying. So it's just sort of helps if you can learn something from one area and apply it to the other, it can end up being quite, it can be stronger than just doing something in, in one area all the time. There's plenty to gain from taking things from, from one industry or one expertise and putting it over to the other. You had a question around the work-life balance as well, I think. Yes, yeah, I did. Yeah. And you know, I say there are times where maybe it was a lot of things to do. And so I didn't have as much free time or whatever, but I think if you're doing what you love to do, it, it's okay. And as I mentioned with performing well and getting the time off, then, you know, now I only work like a 60% contract so that I can do the rallying. And also with the rallying, I don't maybe do other extra things in between rallies that maybe sometimes some other co-drivers do. But I think at the same time, if I perform at the rallying, that's okay. I have time to go work. If I perform at work, then it's okay. I have, I have time to do the rallying. Let's reflect on your journey here, mate. So first of all, what has been your proudest achievement on this journey? Um, yeah, I think actually probably the manifestation of all the work has really been kind of two results. I think in 2020, when we won the two-wheel drive category of Monte Carlo, we we're the first Americans to do that outside of North America. <laughs> For me, that was really special. Obviously, Monte Carlo is the granddad of all rallying and a legendary and really complicated event. And to be able to do this, is our first attempt at the event. So even just to be there was such a lifelong desire and to be able to actually perform and get a result. It was kind of validating of, you know, the 17, 18 years, or whatever I'd spent rallying up into that point. And then I'd say, actually, the most emotional I've ever been is, is this year, just a few months ago, doing the safari rally. So that's the rally in Kenya that my dad grew up with. You know, when we were at the start at the Kenyatta Convention Center, which is, you know, the same start ramp that every safari rally had started going back to the 70s. The rally started in the 50s, but doing that start was in the same. So every rally video I'd ever watched that, you know, my dad had been obsessed with and always dreaming of doing, always had that same same start. And to be there, we were the third car on the start ramp. So we were you know, all the media, all the attention was there. The president of Kenya was there shaking my hand, talking to me and getting ready to start us on the start ramp and, and pulling up to it, you know, just seeing that scene. I just had that image of generations of my own family trying to work towards essentially this, this whole like round the world goal <laughs> of 
actually being able to do the the safari rally you know like my dad grew up with it he never had the money he moved to the u.s to be able to you know have a better life for himself and his children and i ended up having that better life moving to europe to be able to progress through rallying and then i could end up here and i almost just felt like that multi-generational task <laughs> and all those decades that predated my life even of of kind of work frustration and emotion and i just was you know tears were just coming out of my eyes and they couldn't stop <laughs> as we went off the start ramp and over to the the first stage i never realized how much it would uh it would mean to me to be able to do something like that you're now in your 20th season as a rally co-driver alex so how has it shaped you into the person I'm speaking to today? And what has it taught you about yourself? Yeah, I think it has in some ways become my personality in, in many ways, especially the way I act under pressure and particularly the way I deal with some of my close interpersonal relationships. Uh, I've learned a bit more about those, uh, you know, getting engaged and becoming a father in the past year. But I would say, especially about about myself, it's really, I guess it's, it's taught me that um, I am resilient. And I guess it also not just about myself, but it has taught me that if there's something that you want to do, just do it. And actually, it is possible. Because I think oftentimes the hardest thing is when you want to do something, you don't really believe that if you do the steps and put in the effort that it will happen. And I think for rallying, especially because it's been such a long journey over 20 years, that just because I was passionate and persistent that I can make things happen just by doing that and that you're not always going to just get an opportunity. But if you're persistent and you keep going, you'll eventually get lucky. You'll eventually have the opportunities and you'll be in the right place to take advantage of them. And so I guess as far as what has taught me about myself is that, yeah, those things, I can do that. It is possible. And also that I can, I think the biggest part of confidence that rallying has given me is that when the pressure is on and there's, uh, you know, you, uh, you know, in rallying, you're kind of in a situation where the consequences are really high. I feel like I can trust myself. And I always never felt like maybe I could trust myself under pressure, but because I've had to do this thing so many times for so many years and it's worked out, just that repetition has given me that self-confidence that it's hard to really doubt that I can do it because I know from 20 years that I've been able to do it. We've talked all about Alex, the rally co-driver. I want to delve a bit deeper and talk about your own mental health journey, mate. So first of all, I ask all my special guests this question on this topic first. Take me through early life, teenage years, and looking back, were there any early mental health experiences you had? Who's the Alex we meet here? Unfortunately, I think if I go through my full life, I probably have a lot of different medical ailments that have somehow uh, struck me. Not really sure what all the reasons for it are. But I guess if you go through early childhood, I'd say things were quite good. My home was fairly stable. Okay, when I was like a toddler, my parents had to use food stamps and they were quite tight financially, but I was too young to really realize that. By the time I was the age to be able to realize that we're actually quite comfortable, you know, I had a good relationship with my mom and my dad. Obviously, as I talked about, my dad and I would 
do lots of we have the same interests so we were we were good friends and we do everything around computers and rallying and stuff together so that was all really nice i would say once i started getting into my teenage years then things started getting a lot more difficult i think even if you don't have adverse events i think being a teenager is tough and i think for me it was just piled on a lot more i think the first one was you know when i was 12 or 13 i started feeling quite ill and i didn't really know my body well enough to describe what was going wrong. And it turned out that I had Crohn's disease. When it came up, it had actually gotten really bad. It was going to be the second rally that I was hitching a ride to. And it was the day before. And uh, I was so excited to go. And I went to gym class and I just started vomiting. <laughs> oh, <laughs> and no. I thought, uh, I thought, oh, it's just one little vomit. Like, it'll still be okay. I can still go tomorrow. And then it just continued on for the whole rest of the day and the night and you know I couldn't even keep like ice chips down and then that happened you know like four or five more times in the next month so I was really in a lot of pain and a lot of suffering and in and out of hospital and and you know before then I'd, I'd stopped growing so I'd played basketball and been really athletic my early childhood life and I stopped growing so I couldn't do the position I usually played you know kind of next to the basket I was no longer as effective I was getting really tired you know, I went to play basketball. Once you get to middle school, you try out for the team. And for the first time I was cut. And so it was really challenging because I went from feeling like, you know, quite a, not powerful is the right word, but especially in America, if you're athletic and you have your things together, you have friends and it's easy to feeling quite weak and, and helpless and not really knowing what's going on. So for me, that was really, really tough. And, you know, even getting the Crohn's diagnosis, I was thinking, oh, am I ever going to be healthy enough to even compete in rallying and you know it was my life over before it's even started mm. in that way so that was I'd say really really quite hard to to deal with but I'd say this in the next experience sort of yeah that kind of having to take a little step back from sports and those types of things that definitely made my friend group a bit smaller but I started having better and and deeper relationships really because I was going through some things but I was still quite close to people and that sort of set me up for the next challenge, which was around the time I wanted to start rallying around 16. You know, my parents got divorced and I found out about it in the, the worst way because my dad and I used the same computer and I basically stumbled upon his, his emails that had, uh, oh, God. Women that, that had, you know, found some things. And so that was the way I found out about it. So it wasn't great. And, and, you know, my relationship with my dad, that sort of, taking me up to starting rallying, just instantly went to the toilet, basically. And yeah, I didn't have, you know, much of any contact with my dad, even when I started rallying, which is which is really tough. And that's where some people in the rallying community really stepped in. As I mentioned, Claire Chisma, she actually, you know, got me my first helmet and helped me, uh, you know, get started in my first few rallies. You know, my parents, well, my dad, part of, you know, he had a bit of a, I'd say, a midlife crisis, if you want to say, that <laughs> and you know and he had lost his job and that had brought about a lot of financial woes for us as a family you know both my parents declared bankruptcy we lost the house I went to live with my super religiously conservative uncle with my mom which is another difficult experience especially um my mom is a Buddhist both my parents are Buddhist so I grew up, grew oh, up right. Buddhist, so uh, there's quite a big difference oh, that's a between clash. my mom and <laughs> yeah. family probably the Buddhism thing is important quite soon and I found all those things really, really, I'd say really, really challenging and uprooting. And I felt, you know, so I was like 13, 14 going through Crohn's, 15, 16 
the divorce. And I think at that point, I thought I didn't feel like I had, you know, now feeling like I coming from a broken family and all those things that I didn't have, you know, the outlook didn't look so good. And and actually, for me, then what ended up happening is I became a lot better at school. Like I, I was worried, so worried about a little bit worried about becoming a, a failure. But also then I realized that the best way out was to do the best I could in school. And that actually gave me like a feeling of empowerment and being able to see a way out. And then also, you know, up until I was 16, I always did everything with my dad and probably underappreciated my mother. But I think from that experience, I really started to learn how incredible of a person she is. And she really helped me mentally with my own mental health, like not just the illnesses, but then the divorce and my own mindset, trying to get through it in a way that was positive. And I'd say one of the biggest things that I think, uh, you know, the practice of gratitude, which I think is quite trendy now, but the specific way in which she taught me how to do it, and this is you know, 2002, 2003, before anyone cared about these things. Um, and hope didn't exist back then. <laughs> I know, it didn't really exist. But the way she described it was, well, I mean, what we did was, you know, we had a very long drive, like, you know, 45 minutes or something, I guess 45 minutes or so from the school back to my uncle's place each evening. And what she said was, you know, we do an appreciation list on the way home every day. So it didn't have to be big things. It could be the smallest of things. So just 10 things that day that you appreciate or went well and going through the day, be like, oh, I had, you know, a great conversation with one of my best friends or, you know, I had a good volleyball game or I was able to push through in my training a bit more or, you know, I got a decent grade on this paper or I just felt really good today or maybe I didn't have so much homework or something like that. Just those types of small things that made me realize, okay, even if I'm in what seems like a pretty shit situation, actually the mechanics of day-to-day life aren't even that much different. And there's still a lot of things day-to-day, if you just ignore the context of things, there's plenty of things day-to-day that are really enjoyable and you can really appreciate that you can really enjoy. And that there's still lots of things to enjoy in life in any situation that you're in. And I think having that mindset when you feel like you have nothing gives you the confidence to know that if you were to lose everything, you actually still have those moments throughout the day that you can still enjoy, you know, like just being alive and a person on this planet is a gift in of itself. And there's plenty of things that are enjoyable with that. And, and also just about the human state being able to kind of habituate to any situation, you know, even if it's really tough, you can feel quite normal still. And I would say that sort of gave me a really good foundation, as I mentioned, with gratitude, my relationships with my friends in high school gained even more depth. And that group of friends, you know, I ended up more just hanging out with mostly the the nerdy kids that were really quite fun. And those same guys are still my friends today. I still see them in London, even as recently as, uh, you know, when, uh, since I've had my daughter, you know, they've even been been over around then. And there's still some of the biggest depth relationships that I have because they know me. So I'd say, you know, compared to, you know, I think of my sister that maybe was a bit more concerned about being popular and she doesn't really talk to anyone from high school anymore and doesn't have those good relationships. And for me, I had that foundation 
from the beginning, which I think having a foundation of relationships with people that genuinely care about you really uh, sets you up mentally for a much better life. What you've spoken about there is resilience and something that you were clearly able to develop, Alex, but Mm -hmm. a concept which I talk about a lot about on this podcast, which author Nassim Nicholas Tlaib writes about is anti-fragility. And now he says that resilient people stay the same when difficult things happen to them, but anti-fragile people change through them. Where would you put yourself on that scale? I would say back when I was a a teenager, I would say I was anti-fragile, so I was able to, to change quite a lot, I would say. Definitely, I felt like I was a child before those experiences and, and an adult afterwards. Maybe now I feel more like the other. What was it? Anti, anti-fragile. So, what was it? so anti-fragile was when you change after bad things happen and positively, but resilience is you stay the same after bad yeah, things happen. I'd say yeah. now more resilient. <laughs> um, I've had my own challenges as an adult and I'd say getting through those challenges now as an adult, there's been some tweaks, but I would say generally I've been able to be kind of the same throughout them. And also, I think that's also shown by, we'll come to the leukemia and, and my own daughter's birth and those kinds of things soon. But, you know, I've always been able to perform in rallying, perform at my job and get, kind of get back to what I what I do quite quickly, mm. even with those setbacks. But yeah, maybe not as many changes to who I am or who I see myself as as a person. Mm. Yeah, there's definitely more potential for elasticity when you're a child as well, because of just, you're not as maybe self-aware and you can change and however much you want. You yeah. spoke there about leukemia. So let's talk about it now. And you were diagnosed with it in 2015. Now, thankfully, yeah. this didn't turn out to be as serious as other people who are diagnosed with a disease. But yeah. how did you feel when you were diagnosed? What was the treatment process after it like? And given the nature of it, were you scared at any point? I would say that the hardest thing about it was how scary it was. The type of leukemia I had, it's called chronic myeloid leukemia. It was a terminal illness until 2001. Wow. Um, And then the first targeted chemotherapy drug came out called imatinib, which essentially with one pill a day turned a previously terminal illness into a fully manageable condition. So I never knew that. Wow, that's amazing. And it more or less targets the cancer cells while leaving the rest of the cells intact, which is really, really amazing, like such a breakthrough in medical science. It also has a couple other notorious things, whereas like, you know, it was released for the cost was like $30,000 a year for it when it first came out under patent. And then as uh, it got closer to becoming generic, the price increased to like over 100000 per year in America. And, and yeah, some of those things, especially being in the UK and not having to pay for it at all, because since all oncology or um, sorry, chemotherapy drugs are, are free, I think that was emotionally quite overwhelming for, for me to be uh, just given that and not having to worry about the cost of saving my own life, essentially. Mm. But yeah, I think, you know, of course, when it happens, you doubt whether or not they got the diagnosis right. Like, did they get it wrong? And maybe I have like some kind of aggressive leukemia and I'm just going to die. Or, you know, you don't know if the treatment's necessarily going to work for you. Or there's also, you know, there's some people where the treatment, okay, it works, but they feel, feel sick, tired, nauseous all the time. So you don't know how you're going to react to the treatment. For me, because I didn't feel that bad, I felt like I had a sinus infection that just like wouldn't go away. 
and then they, you know, did repeated blood tests and saw my white blood cell count kind of growing exponentially. So they, they knew what it was. It was, yeah, obviously quite huge news to news to take. And actually what happened was I, I was doing a rally back in the US in, in Oregon that week and I was leaving on Wednesday and the Tuesday I came in and I sat in the clinic and you know waiting to you know for this specialist appointment to find out whether or not I had it and everyone else was being seen and I wasn't <laughs> and I kept waiting and waiting and the nurse came and got me and it was like I could see a packet in her hand like it was basically like how to tell a family you have cancer kind of thing it's like, oh Jesus Christ so you know I got in and the doctor the oncologist I had I feel like she's like a friend she's been really really pragmatic understands me really well and I told her she answered all my questions, like, you know, quite clinically, but I, you know, I wanted the information and I said, you know, I'm supposed to go to Oregon tomorrow for a rally. How urgent is it for me to start the treatment? Is it still safe for me to go? You know, the team had already spent thousands to have me there and those kinds of things. So she said, actually, it's, it's fine. You can start it. And anytime in the next two weeks, you'll be all right. So the next day I did get myself on a plane and go to Oregon. And I think, in that like 12 hour flight, I think I went from <laughs> the absolute pits you could, you know, the worst feelings you could have in the world. Like I'm, I have maybe aggressive cancer, I'm going to die, maybe I'm pushing things too far and I'm not even giving myself a chance to catch anything or survive to, to then actually going quite the opposite way and saying, well, I don't know actually what the future is going to hold for me, but I know that there's this one thing I've always had a passion for and really loved doing. And it was with the driver that I did Finland with in 2012. And actually, how lucky is it that I have this opportunity to engage in what I love doing with the people that have supported me and cared about me throughout my whole life? Because I was going back to the US to do a rally. I haven't hadn't done that since I'd moved to the UK, you know, three years prior. So I was then just so grateful to be able to do it at least one more time. That's kind of the attitude I, I took took into it. So just doing a rally and the focus it requires is a good way of, for me, always mentally resetting. And so when I came home, I was ready for what I had to go through and what I would maybe have to go through. And, uh, you know, I realized that as far as my life was concerned, if it had to end then, I was still very proud of everything that happened and felt like I had lived my life in a deliberate and positive way. Not deliberate, but I'd you know, gone after the things that mattered to me and developed a lot as a person and had lived actually quite a full life. And, you know, I didn't want it to come to an end, but I guess I accepted it. And I went through treatment and, and actually it was fine. I was a little bit tired and that was it. At EY, they gave me as much paid leave as I needed. And I didn't have to worry about paying for the treatment. I didn't have to worry about paying for my apartment or anything. And I had lots of good friends around me. And so I uh, slept and relaxed and I wasn't in any pain. And soon enough, I was kind of back to normal, just taking uh, a pill once a day. And I didn't have, you know, really bad side effects or anything. I was able to resume life and physically be able to even be, you know, like, you know, with my own fitness levels and stuff, you know, better than I had been before. Amazing, man. Amazing. It sounds like you got even more perspective on life than you were when you're doing the gratitude <laughs> list for sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I say mentally, it was a lot. But physically, it was a lot more difficult physically, you know, going through the Crohn's when I was mm. younger then. Before we talk about fatherhood, you've gone yeah. through three really big grief 
griefs, I should say, in your life, Alex. Yeah. And they were all big shocks. They weren't natural yeah. griefs, shall we say. So yeah. in 2017, you lost your mentor. We discussed earlier in the pod, Claire, in a motorcycle crash. You lost your best friend from university who took his own life. And your hero and driver, Dave Mirror, who developed CTE and also took his own life. So tell me about Claire first. How did her death impact you? Yeah, that was a tricky one. I felt like, you know, Claire actually had a pretty crazy life. She was, uh, she grew up in the Mormon community. Um, oh, wow. And then got married and started having kids when she was 19. And her husband was actually gay. And they both wanted a divorce. But because they weren't allowed a divorce, she basically ended up being excommunicated. And so she That's, had this, There's a lot going on there, man. <laughs> yeah, she had this crazy life of, you know, and a bunch of marriages and children from other marriages. And it felt like rallying was maybe a bit of a, an anchor of a community for her. And she was always good at it and really successful. And as I mentioned, always really encouraging and, and helpful to me. And she had quite a difficult, what I meant to say is she had quite a difficult family life and everything like that. And things had finally settled where she was in, you know, a good, healthy, thriving, supportive relationship. Her kids were now like, she started quite early, quite grown. She had grandkids and it was sort of like everything that had been so difficult in her life. She finally kind of resolved everything. And I just wish she had more time to just simply enjoy her life after then a bit more. It was always really nice to see how proud she was of me and you know what I always wanted to do was once I was you know if I got to the point of being permanent or you know regular in the world rally championship well like I've been the past few years um, that you know I could bring her over and give her that experience and and just be able to to show her how much her help had given to me and I regret that I feel like I never I'd always told her how much it helped and she could see how much it helped but I you know I never really got to really really he uh convey that so you know obviously you're being taken quite quickly you know it wasn't able to wasn't able to do that and i'd say that you know with dave even and, and you know my one of my best friends from from uni also taking his life i think it'd been tough because i've been so busy over here trying to work towards being in the world rally championship that you know i felt like i hadn't taken the appropriate amount of or been able to take enough time to you know, reach out in those relationships and mm. be more present in them mm. due to being a little bit selfish about my own dreams and aspirations. Mm. A common thing that you've just described is guilt in when suicide affects loved ones. And we, and I've certainly felt this when I've seen someone who's taken their life and someone who's been close to me or someone who, are, even just an acquaintance really, or someone I'm just a good friend with, we always tend to think, could we have done more? Could we have checked in at an earlier mm -hmm. time that maybe could have saved them? And I guess it's an irrational thought, but it's a natural thought. Did you ever have that when you went through both of those suicides with Dave and your best friend? Yeah. I mean, Dave, that was such a surprise and no one knew. And, and he was obviously, he had a family, he was well connected and it's just, with Dave it's just it's just more tragic that those things can happen to those people more than anything else I think uh you know my other friends Joel from from college he was really close close to and then there was my one crew chief Jeff Shu, who was you know quite connected with Claire's Claire Chisholm as well 
those are all, all happened in the same year. And, oh my God. Uh, with, um, I think especially with my friend Joel is like the Christmas before then I had a girlfriend at the time that I brought over and I didn't get a chance to see him. You know, he mm. usually was, uh, you know, was like hanging out with all dudes and at the pub drinking and, you know, like groups of like, you know, 10, he's always a joker. So like groups of like 10, 15 dudes. And I just like her first time in Philly, I just wasn't going to like object <laughs> to that right away. And unfortunately that would have been the last chance, you know, I had, I had to see mm. him and, and I knew that things had gone awry a little bit in his life, I'd say as far as, you know, his own progression and, and where he wanted to be. But I think, and this happens quite often, people that are kind of like the, um, life the and soul of the party, party sort of characters. Like, yeah, you know, yeah. the, the, he's always the joker, like the funny mm. one. You just don't expect that to happen, even though you, there's so many examples of that happening with people, especially, you know, comedians. Um, yeah, uh, Robin Williams is one. There's, in that kind tons, of yeah. place, yeah. I want to talk about a very positive moment in your life now, mate, but one which still brought a lot of challenges, even in the start of it, which was your daughter's birth. So the reason I say that is because she was born 13 weeks early, which I imagine must have been yeah. hugely stressful for not just the mum, but for you and for her. Yeah. How is she at the moment first of all how are you and and how did that impact you and your wife's mental health yeah i mean at the moment she's so yeah she is back home and she's uh you know your average average baby which we have to appreciate she squirms around and she eats and poops a lot and doesn't sleep very quietly but sometimes sleeps and sometimes doesn't and sometimes keeps her food down and sometimes pukes up on you a bit <laughs> and sometimes she's really happy and sweet and sometimes she's you know fussy and crying and that's just uh being a new parent so grateful that you can do that I'd say anyone with a she's essentially a, a seven seven week old baby if you go by her due date um and that's you know how she behaves developmentally um which is amazing since uh, she was born so early and you know had some medical issues herself and challenges with that I'd say at the moment yeah, we're grateful to be having the normal parent challenges <laughs> mm. that you have that you have. But it has been really nice just having having my daughter and having someone that uh, can say so little, but you uh, just love so much. I remember when we were chatting before this pod, and and you were rightly kind of feeling a lot of anxiety when she was still in the hospital. So now she's out. Do you mm -hmm. feel like you can be that dad, and you you feel like it's natural to say you are a dad now? And and yeah. how has that perspective changed for you too? I definitely feel like a dad now and mm. uh, it feels like, you know, I have my child now and we're a family. I would say that perspective has changed, especially I think being a new parent is, is really, really full on. It's hard to have kind of like any breaks in the day. You know, obviously you're not sleeping as much or as well and everything that seemed quite simple and straightforward all of a sudden becomes really, really complicated and requires a lot of planning out. I'd always been very self-sufficient individually like I, I, you know through all these things that we've talked about I've, I felt quite confident in being able to handle any issues that came up with myself but now all of a sudden I have uh, everything's tied to my partner and and my child and their health and happiness is synonymous with my own to be honest I mean even even with my partner it's like if she doesn't get a good night's sleep or she's ill or upset 
it is as if I am as well, because <laughs> mm-hmm. you you know you're working so hard to get everything everything done together. If she's really struggling, it's going to make me struggle. And of course, before I cared about her well being and her health, but I never uh, realized how much they'd be tied together. And same thing with uh, with the baby. Most obviously, if she doesn't sleep well, then uh, I don't sleep well. <laughs> so <laughs> you know, it's, it's one and the same. And I think that perspective shift where now someone else's life is you have to put it above your own. Um, mm-hmm. And I knew that going into it and I was ready for it. Fortunately, since I've been able to do most of the things that were really important to me already, but it's still a really hard transition to make when you're used to doing things to support your own growth and your own dreams and your own development. And now those are taking a back seat. Mm. <laughs> essentially you can still do mm. them but you know there's someone else's life that's a bit a bit mm. more important um, so that planning and organization for rally driving probably helps as well <laughs> oh yeah for sure for sure for sure there's been a few shortcuts i've had to use <laughs> <laughs> let's reflect on your mental health journey now alex so first of all if claire your best friend joel or dave was listening to this podcast what would you say to them and what do you think they'd say to you Hmm. I mean, of course, for Joel, it would have been that I wish I could have brought him over here and had some of the great times that we had back in college and and afterwards and that he, you know, that he's a, a hilarious, intelligent, capable, caring, loving individual that had so much potential and uh, um, that we could do things to help him be able to see that. I mean, I think mm. as far as if Claire was listening to this podcast, I feel like she would and should be quite quite proud that um to know that caring about someone even if like they're their own child, even if they're not, and giving them that encouragement and assistance early on, even if it's not like financial or anything or with resources that can completely change someone's life for the better. And at least fortunately, she saw the beginning of that. She just didn't get to see uh, see how it ended. And Dave, of course, we were close when we were running together and we had more interactions and, and made amends. But uh, I wish, you know, I guess he, I wish um, he could have still been involved and maybe as a better, more mature co-driver in the future, we could have um, worked together again. And uh, I always admired how he was a dad to, to his daughters being a, extreme sports star and uh, (laughs) I wish I could talk to him and learn a bit about that from him too. And as a final question mate, A, what has this mental health journey taught you about yourself and B, if you could go back and talk to say the 16 year old Alex who was struggling to deal with his parents divorce, writing those gratitude lists, perhaps the Alex who had just been diagnosed with Crohn's disease or leukemia or the Alex who was grieving for the death of those three massive people in his life in 2017 what would you say to him knowing what you do now I mean I guess the I mean I think talking to myself at at that age I think it's having the confidence that things as you get older will get better I think to keep working on yourself and really cherishing those close relationships with a lot of depth that you can have and to really keep those ones close 
I would say to always, especially, you know, through the, the illnesses and that sort of thing. And when I was younger, just to really look after your own physical health, because your physical and your mental health are very well tied. And uh, if you feel good about yourself physically and your own fitness, it makes a huge difference to your outlook on life and the way you're able to to work day to day. I guess uh, as far as... Um, I was just trying to think, sorry. So I'm ending this poorly. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And also just that those things that work as far as helping you get through difficult times, like those appreciation lists. Also, when I was 17, that's when I looked a bit deeper into other forms of Buddhism and learned mindfulness meditation. Well, Vipassana, since mindfulness wasn't a thing yet. And that also had a great impact on me being able to study and understand my own emotions. I think those things that work for you in times of grief, it's important to be disciplined to include them and integrate them when things are going well as well also. And that there's actually challenges to, what I tell myself is actually as a 16 year old, now that I I thought of it is like, actually maybe you'll actually experience the opposite challenge of trying to figure out to do when everything is going well. <laughs> you, you <laughs> get so much better, you won't even know what to necessarily do with yourself at some point. So um, I think those two things, like putting those systems in place that help you get through hard times and having the confidence that if you keep practicing those things, your life and most importantly, your own mental state will also continue to improve and that it's a process that also requires persistence. <laughs> We've come to our final topic of conversation, Alex, and it's one I try and have with all of my special guests if we have time. It is a general natter and quickfire chat about mental health. So firstly, how is your mental health, mate? I mean, right now it's uh, a bit chaotic, but I guess it's good. <laughs> I can't say life is life is not easy, but it's meaningful at the moment. So I'll leave Excellent. That. And if you felt comfortable saying, what mental health issues or conditions, if any, do you live with and how do they affect you in your day-to-day life? Fortunately, I don't live with any specific mental health issues at the moment. I'd say only things have only been quite brief for periods of time when you go through grieving sadness mm-hmm. for normal reasons. So, yeah. What age do you think you were when you became self-aware of your own mental health and you realized that the feelings you were having weren't physical and they were actually in your mind and a product of your mental health? When I was, I remember, when I was 17 and had the, the first high school big like not just a crush but someone you're like in love with basically that you know doesn't really return it oh it's the worst yeah yeah, you know you know how it and (laughs) and there was other complications with it with it as well with like one of her parents you know not wanting her to be with someone of my race and that sort of thing so anyway god uh, and that's when I, i felt like my head started spinning out of control and you know, I was normal teenager, depressed mm. stuff or an overthinking stuff. And that's when I, you know, started reading a lot more about Buddhism and different sects of Buddhism that I didn't grow up with and learning different forms of meditation and then being able to notice my own feelings and experiencing them as actually physical sensations and sort of detach sometimes the physical emotions and the feelings and the sensations and the monkey mind, I guess, from from myself and be able to give myself some some space to think about things and actually be able to improve my own mental condition and, and my own life and, and realize uh, how some 
things were related. So yeah, I'd say at that point. Can you tell me about the first conversation you ever had with someone about your mental health? So who was it with? What did you say? And on the one hand, did it feel like a big moment or a big weight had been lifted off your shoulders? Or on the other, did it feel like something quite easy, insignificant and normal to do? I feel like with um, my mental health, I feel like most of those conversations happened quite young when I was with uh, you know my best friend, Ed. He's best friend since high school, went to uni with me and we're still really close now. And he's, I guess, struggled a lot with depression and, and mental health and sometimes thoughts of self-harm and, and those types of things. And I think, fortunately, it hasn't been a watershed moment. It's been something that's been consistent throughout my life. And he is someone that thought quite deeply, but also had a good sense of humor about everything from you know the time I had Crohn's through my parents' divorce through, you know, even when we've been in different countries now for leukemia, fatherhood and other things. So I mm. think those conversations, even though they're not as frequent as they used to be, they always are, are there. And I think having just a conversation about how you're doing at a high level of depth with someone that is willing to take the time to listen to you and knows your history and background from an early age, I think that was a a game changer for me as far as my relationships with other people. So Mm. I guess the first one would be back when I was a teenager (laughs) and it was one way of setting me up for better mental health throughout my life. What triggers do you have that affect your mental health? So it could be, for example, things people say to you. It could be a sound, a sensation, being in a particular social environment, or have you not figured all of them out yet? Yeah, I haven't figured all of them out yet. I think probably trigger for me is like just being considered self-centered or selfish a little because then obviously I know I've had to do quite a lot for myself but you know I'm trying to also be a good father I'm in Mm -hmm. transition to being a dad and you know more focused on other people and others now that I've done many things well for my own been successful from my own standards for myself so that's probably a bit triggering for <laughs> for me when I hear that because uh, it's what I'm trying. I think as with anything, whenever you hear something about you know what you're trying not to be or how you're trying to change, it always uh, brings up a lot of defensiveness. <laughs> Conversely, then, what positive tools and methods do you use in your own life to improve your mental health or help you feel better? Which ones have you found that have worked for you, and maybe which ones that you've tried but haven't? I've always said that one of the things that does help me is that going back to that old appreciation list so the practice of gratitude but in a more structured way not so much like hashtag grateful but actually (laughs) when things are really tough and also well in a way that also uh, you notice the small things so you know you're not just doing an appreciation list when you're on holiday in a beautiful beach setting but you know you're doing that list after you've worked a 12 hour day, it's raining outside and you haven't gotten to do anything that you necessarily would say love or enjoy. And you go through that sort of day and find all the things that you really enjoyed about and appreciate about it. For me, that's huge as far as getting through difficult times and also appreciating times where things are actually going well, but maybe you're not really seeing how well it is or how good it is which ones found that worked and which ones haven't. Like I said, like meditation has worked for me, but I actually don't do it as much anymore. My meditation practices 
kind of spotty and it's odd since now that seems to be what everyone's doing yeah <laughs> and, um, and, and I'm like a bit crap with it but I guess in some ways I've found ways to do it and in, in integrate it into other things in other ways and exercise and physical health and which ones haven't I'm trying to trying to think which ones haven't I feel like especially now with the focus on mental health the guidance I think is all quite sound and good and I feel like a lot of it is actually extracted from what I think is mostly quite true, which is some Buddhist practices mm-hmm. and Buddhist philosophy that I think is built into quite a lot of the modern mental health messaging. And so I think they all work. It's just that you don't necessarily always have time to do all the things all the time or to be just focused on your own mental health. Sometimes you do just need to do stuff, <laughs> even <laughs> even if you're not happy, you know, yeah. so it's okay. But yeah, it's good to take the, you definitely want to take the things that have the biggest impact. If there was a mantra in life that summed up your mental health, what would it be and why? Mm. I think you can have some of the best times, even when you're in the worst times. And I think appreciate every moment of your life, you know, both the the good and the bad. Amazing. What is the best book, or as I call it, mental health Bible you've read for your mental health? Now, it can be mental health or self-help related, but it doesn't exclusively have to be. It could be fiction or something completely different. Yeah, I mean, I think when I was younger, reading a lot of the different Buddhist books, Tishnanha has a lot of great stuff that I think is very accessible and can help you on your journey and, and framing of life. My favorite mental health book as of you know, the past few years since I've had that foundation in Buddhist philosophy that I think really works has been a book called, I shall share, Good Reasons for Bad Feelings. And, Interesting. you know, I read that book in 2019, 2020, around then. And that was, I think, around the time in my life. So 2019 was my first year being full-time in the World Rally Championship, 60%, kind of had everything in my professional career, both professional careers going really well. I'd just been promoted to senior manager the previous year. So like money was good. I was in a good relationship, still in that good relationship. (laughs) And uh, I felt validated as far as my rallying career and everything else was concerned. But of course, it wasn't like every day was bliss. (laughs) You know, maybe for for the the, the first few months, you're really caught up in, wow, this is so amazing that I'm a professional co-driver in the World Rally Championship and I don't have to worry about money or anything like that and I can have all these amazing things and I did I think sometimes you still still would struggle I would still struggle for well what's next or what's the purpose of everything or what do I do now when you know you still feel upset or sad or frustrated about things from time to time and I'd say that book structures very well as to the evolution it's an evolutionary psychology book around why people feel sad depressed what the mechanisms for that and what the purpose of those emotions are. And I think getting that perspective where for me, it scientifically, it really made sense as to, okay, yes, you can feel good, but no matter how good your life is, you're never going to be happy all the time. Um, Mm. And just take sort of that, you're never going to, you know, feel life that's all pleasure all the time. And just to take that out of your mind as something that's possible (laughs) and understand the reasons as to why sometimes you're not going to to feel great and why that's okay and maybe even necessary I think was quite for me quite eye-opening and powerful to read 
and it's not it's a it's kind of a, a geeky clinical book but i think more people should read it to get a good context on what mental health is mm. and what's possible and as a final question mate this is another broad one what more do you think we have to do to ensure men from all backgrounds all walks of life feel comfortable and safe in opening up about their mental health issues or just their general mental health if most importantly they want to do it i think it's just that men need to feel safe opening Trusted. up about their mm. emotions and that just i guess like being tough isn't about suppressing yourself it's about working through difficult times and that's actually how you build toughness and how you build resilience it's not by closing up and pretending that none of that is around or or that's there and i think for me always stressing the importance of really close friendships with other men as well that aren't just based on you know shared interests or fun or anything like that they you know that have depth in making time for those relationships even when you know you have a a family or a partner and that sort of thing i think even just living with my own fiance and seeing how her relationships differ from most men's relationships you start to see the good and the bad of each <laughs> and on each side and i think men just need to be a little more confident in being okay with opening up to each other when things are tough whereas uh i always see with you know my partner and her friends sometimes uh sometimes you do just need to forget about something tough and enjoy your time with your friends and yes. just have a, a mental break and sometimes I feel like with women, they don't always give each other that mental break that they need yeah. to just Sometimes men do themselves. it not enough and sometimes women do it too much. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. So finding that balance enough. Because sometimes when you've had a really tough day, sometimes you just need to have a pint, go out, you know, banter, whatever, yeah. and just reset. And sometimes you you do really need to talk about it. And, mm. and it's fine to, to have both. It's a brilliant way to end it. Alex Kiharani, thank you so much for putting so much time aside to talk to me. Thank you so much for coming on mind on the game and telling all my amazing listeners about the amazing work you do about your story and for checking in with me thanks so much for uh delving into the strange confusing world of rallying <laughs> and obviously really really listening to me and really uh taking the time to to understand my whole journey it's been very flattering so thank you <laughs> Well, that's all we've got time for in this episode of Mind on the Game. I want to say a big thank you to Alex for being my special guest on this episode. I hope you've all learned a lot about the world of rally driving. And to the rally fans who've tuned in just for this episode, please stay and keep checking in, guys. As always, thank you to all the vendors who've tuned in. I'll sign us off by saying, if you like what you've heard, give it a share on social media. Tell your friends or work colleagues about it. If you're feeling generous, write us a review and give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. If you like what we're doing here at Vent, please also consider supporting our Patreon. That's at www.patreon.com slash venthelpuk. If you don't want to do that, you can make a one-off donation to our GoFundMe or you can buy a Vent t-shirt. That is on our link tree. That's at linktr.ee slash venthelpuk. Stay tuned for the next episode of Mind on the Game. And remember guys, it is always okay to vent. Vent.